The reading for today's sermon comes from Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favour with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray together. Merciful and gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for pouring out your Spirit upon us. Thank you that that same Spirit who was poured out on the day of Pentecost now fills your church just as he fills the Lord Jesus Christ into whose image he is conforming us. We pray that that indeed would be our experience today as we hear his words re-spoken to us here. Reshape us, we pray. Make us new. Increase our conformity to Jesus And may we be ever more equipped, even from what we hear in these next few minutes, to live lives that honour you as our Heavenly Father. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please do take a seat. And let me extend my welcome also to those of you who are visiting today. It's a, a wonderful occasion to be visiting, whether or not you're family and friends of the Zern family. It's just great to have you guys with us and and a number of other visitors as well. You are most welcome. We hope you stick around afterwards for the baptism reception. Give us a chance to get to know you a little bit better. Today's sermon is really very simple. I want to explore with you the four foundations of the life of the early church as they're highlighted in this portion of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, which were articulated following the establishment of the church at Pentecost. You remember... Uh, The context is very, very straightforward. The the promised gift of the Holy Spirit had been received in Acts chapter 2, accompanied by signs and wonders. And Peter explains in the sermon that occupies the rest of the chapter from verse 14 down to just before, well, really, uh, verse 36. It was before last week's reading. He explains that this gift of the Spirit has been poured out by the crucified, risen, and ascended Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, you people who crucified him really ought to repent. And they were cut to the heart, stabbed in the heart. And 3,000 repented that day, were baptized, putting their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that brings us to the end of verse 41. Those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And so you've got this new community of people, 3,000 people mostly Jewish Christians in Jerusalem who have committed themselves to their Messiah, the Lord Jesus. And you've got to ask the question, what do they do now? Many of them were in Jerusalem specifically for the Old Covenant Feast of Weeks, which has been upended and glorified at the Christian Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit. So some of them will be heading back to various places from which they've come, but not all of them. There were some Uh, Jewish residents in Jerusalem and no doubt other people who were in Jerusalem not from so far away who are going to form the nucleus of a new set of communities and you might think well what on earth they do next I mean we just put our trust in Jesus we can all go home and you know watch the Super Bowl or whatever else it was we were going to do you know no that's not the answer 
Because what this text highlights is that there is a, a new way of life that these men and women and children adopted, and it's summarized in verse 42. Just look with me. The, the text is really quite simple in structure. Verse 42 summarizes four aspects of this new community's life. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, literally the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers, these four foundations of their life together. And then these are expanded upon in verses 43 to 47. And if you just skim down there, you can sort of see some of what we'll look at in the next few minutes. Just to give one example, verses 44 and 45 clearly expand on what is meant by the fellowship. It's the sharing of possessions and goods as any had need and so on and so forth. So you can readily see then, this is one of those passages just like, okay, this is a straightforward, if this is the first Bible study you ever had to lead at your Christian fellowship at your college where you happen to be studying, you've got one that's really teed up for you. You know, the relevance to the modern church, the relevance to us here at All Saints, the relevance to the new church plant that we're looking forward to launching, Lord willing, in January, could not be clearer, could it? These people, look at verse 42. They devoted themselves. Not just they went along occasionally. Not just, no, it's kind of a new hobby that we've got here, this Christian thing. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching as they gathered together to plumb the depths of Scripture, to have their eyes opened in new ways to how Christ the crucified Nazarene who now raised and seated on high in the heavenly places is the Messiah, is the Lord of all the earth. And they began to see and piece together with increasing glorious technicolor detail all the ways in which the Old Testament scriptures about which the apostles spoke pointed to and illuminated his life. And they were led to daily repentance of their sins. And imagine all the old ways of life they'd have had to cast aside as the scriptures were open to them. And it's like this needs to be dealt with and those things need to be dealt with and you need to stop doing that and this is how you ought to relate to your spouses and this is how you children ought to behave. The apostles' teaching turned this community upside down. The fellowship, they're committed to each other, bearing one another's burdens. There's a reorientation of their life to each other. Some of these people in future months and years and even at this point would have left behind parents who no longer wanted to see them siblings who would dissociate themselves from them, former friends because they belonged to Jesus and now their new family, the church, the household of God would be there for them and they devoted themselves to each other. Nobody who'd lost father or mother or sons or daughters would be left without a hundredfold in the kingdom of God, Jesus promised. And then the, the breaking of bread, is that the Lord's Supper? Or is it just the, the meals, fellowship meals? Of course, Yes both. And then the prayers, perhaps both the formal prayers of the temple, verse 46, and their personal prayers, which were now transformed and enlivened by the fact that Christ in you is the hope of glory. You're not praying to a God far off, kept away from the people behind the series of curtains and barriers and priests and other things to stop you going in to the temple, but now the temple curtain has been torn from top to bottom and Jesus has entered in and now your prayers don't bounce off the ceiling, but they're heard by the living God who's made his dwelling within you by the Spirit. So you can readily see how verse 42 has become something of a manifesto, and rightly so, for the church down through the ages as we seek to keep the main thing the main thing, how easy it is to let our focus drift onto other things when this should be the main thing. Now, of course, 
Um, we do need to clarify, and it's worth mentioning this briefly, that this isn't, obviously, a complete systematic theology of the church. There are many things about the church's life which are expounded elsewhere in Scripture, both in Old and New Testaments, which ought to fe feature in our formal ecclesiology. That's a technical term for the doctrine of the church. There have been some movements in church history which have wrongly taken this passage and a few others scattered throughout the New Testament as though they're an exhaustive picture of the church's life. You know, we need to uh, return to the pure days of the first century church. You see this particularly in some house church movements. And I have to say, sometimes there's a slightly idealized picture of the first century church here, and uh, some of it's informed, I think, more by uh, post-romanticism, you know, the, the disdain or dislike for structures and formal hierarchical structures and uh, leadership and accountability and so on, which elsewhere in the New Testament and the Old Testament, for that matter, is spelled out very plainly. I mean, apart from anything else, if you think for five seconds, the, the idea of the pure days of the early first century church sort of runs headlong into Corinth and Galatia, doesn't it? Like, we just want to be like the pure church in Galatia with all their denials of the gospel, or the incestuous and legalistic and divided church in Corinth. There were problems in the early church in the very earliest days. And so what I'm suggesting to you with verse 42 being a picture of foundational aspects of the Christian life is that it's not an exhaustive ecclesiology, but it is nonetheless valuable. It's, if you just think about the shape of the passage as a whole, at the end of the little section I read, verse 47, it's clear that, uh, that there's a positive tone to this. The Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. It's like this is how it was supposed to be. And so clearly here there are ingredients that we should be ready to take uh, into account and to think about and to reflect on as we consider our life as a church together. So I want to begin like one initial observation, which I think, well, I hope will enable us to see all this material in a slightly different light. And then to go one by one through these four elements, teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, prayer. So just think for a second. Four foundations of the church. How many foundations does the church have? I mean, once you start to think about that question, it's, it's, it's not obvious that Scripture does say there are four, is it? I mean, Jesus says to Peter that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So there's a sense in which Peter, as the leader of the apostolic preaching and teaching and community, is the foundation of the church. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. There's a sense in which there's Christ. There's a sense in which it's the apostles and prophets. If you know that famous hymn by Samuel John Stone, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ her Lord. I was going to sing it for you. I occasionally break into song when I'm teaching. I did for the Bible and theology students earlier this week. They, they listen to me like, that was weird. And it, it was a little bit, as you'd know if I sang that. But anyway, so am I disagreeing then with Samuel John Stone by saying there are four foundations to the church? Actually, I'm not. I chose this title somewhat, not provocatively, but hopefully hoping to provoke a connection or two. I want to say that Samuel John Stone, the great hymn writer, is right. The church has one foundation, and the church has four foundations as well. Because, and here's the crucial point, 
These four elements of the church's life, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, the prayers, are not alternatives to the one foundation who is Christ. These are ways in which Christ, the one foundation, is encountered and experienced. Let me say that again. I'm not saying these four foundations are alternatives to Jesus. I'm saying they're ways in which we meet with Jesus. Ways in which we encounter and experience that one foundation, who is Christ. And it's that that I want to keep returning to as we work through these things one at a time. Let's just think first about the apostles' teaching. Go through them one at a time. It may may take a bit longer to go through the apostles' teaching because I got carried away in my preparation and then I thought, I need to cut somewhere, so I'll cut at the end. So don't worry if we're going a little long for this first point. You're thinking, four more, three more points? It's okay. The apostles' teaching is the first way, it seems to me, that this passage highlights that we encounter and experience Jesus. Let's look at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and so on. And it seems, and this is very widespread conclusion among commentators on this passage, verse 43 actually expounds what it means for the early church to have been captured by the teaching of the apostles. Just look at verse 43. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now, just pause there one second. You will know if you've listened to, I forget which podcast it was, it was two or three weeks ago, Pastor Shaw and I had a conversation about the signs and wonders in the first, uh, in the early days of the book of Acts. And Pastor Shaw made the observation, which is, again, very widespread among Reformed theologians and, and before that, right down to the early church, that these signs and wonders, which are mentioned here, mentioned in verse 22, the mighty works and wonders and signs, the things prophesied by Joel, chapter 2, verse 19, wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. These miraculous signs were given by God specifically to authenticate the apostles' preaching. And so what was it that showed to the early church that we've really got to take these men seriously. There were preachers aplenty in Jerusalem in the first century. Let me tell you, on the day of Pentecost, when you got thousands or tens of thousands of pilgrims arriving for the Feast of Weeks, there would have been preachers all over the place. Every street corner would have had a preacher. So why should you take these men seriously? And the answer is because just like the Lord God authenticated Moses in the book of Exodus, Elijah and Elisha later, Joshua with the miraculous signs that he did, so also these men were authenticated and their teaching was authenticated with these miraculous signs and wonders. The reason we can trust the apostles is because God shows us that we should trust the apostles' preaching and teaching. And so this awe that came upon every soul, it wasn't awe because, wow, those miracles. It was awe because... Wow, those miracles show us that our whole vision of what God is doing in the world needs to be radically reshaped because we realize that Jesus is the Messiah about whom our Old Testament scriptures speak. So they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They wanted nothing more than to gather together to hear the word of God expounded by these men whom the Lord had authenticated for them. Nothing more perhaps except fellowship, breaking of bread and prayers. Come to that in a second. Now, I just want to highlight a theme here that has been neglected 
I think, in Reformed and Evangelical circles for quite a long time. It's certainly there in the best of our historic writers. It's there in John Calvin. And it concerns this matter of how the teaching of the apostles is connected with encountering Jesus. Remember I wanted to say, this is not four foundations that are separate from Jesus. This is four foundations through which we encounter Jesus. How is it that the apostles' teaching is connected with our encountering Christ? Let me tell you a story. Many years ago, the first church I ever worked at in Wimbledon in southwest London, it was a somewhat more informal church, evangelical and Calvinist, uh, paid a Baptist church, but slightly more informal than All Saints. And um, the, the reading for the sermon was read by my friend Pete, Pete Matthew, who's now a clergyman. And I was due to preach, and he read the, the, the reading for the sermon, and then he said, and I quote, now Jeffers is going to come and explain that passage of the Bible to us. Uh, yeah, that's right, Jeffers was what they used to call me. We had, there were two Steves on the staff team, Steve Smith and Steve Jeffrey. So he was Smithers and I was Jeffers. <laughs> you learn all about English culture and everything, don't you? Jeffers is going to come and explain that part of the Bible to us. And I thought, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to do that. At least, I'm pretty sure I'm not just trying to do that. What my friend Pete had said, and what I know he now, uh, if you asked him again, would be, yeah, I was probably oversimplified that a bit, didn't I? What we realized and came to realize increasingly is preaching is not explaining only. Preaching is that, but preaching is more than that. The problem is this Bible is a religious textbook vision of preaching. The Bible is not a religious textbook, and preaching is not like what your chemistry teacher does when they sit you down and try and explain the stuff you don't understand on page 73 about S orbitals and P orbitals. That's not, I'm not here to explain to you the religious doctrines contained in this rather mystifying book. I am here to preach the Word of God. And I suspect if I said that, you're like, yeah, of course he's preaching the Word of God. Let me show you what I actually mean. What I mean is, and I say this not intending to inflate myself, actually I say it with a degree of trepidation, what I mean to say is that the words of the preacher are the words of Christ, and therefore are the words of the living God. Before I insert all the caveats that you're thinking, my goodness, what is he talking about? I need to show you this in the Bible. If you've got your Bibles, I'd appreciate it if you just turn with me to Romans chapter 10. I've got a little bit of a tour of several uh, passages of Scripture to take you on. In Romans chapter 10, uh, Paul the Apostle is, well, I won't try and introduce the whole of the book of Romans to you, but okay, let's suffice it to say that um, Romans 10, uh, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Verse 11, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, etc. Then quote from Joel chapter 2, like in Acts 2, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you want to be saved, you need to call on the name of the Lord, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Right, now however are you going to do that? However are you going to get to the point where you can call on the name of the Lord Jesus? Paul goes on to explain. And I'm going to read you verse um, 14. And there's, there's a translation glitch in my Bible and yours. 
And this, again, is one of those places where the commentators are in agreement. I'm not saying anything outlandish here. Here's what it says. How are they to call on him whom they have not believed? It doesn't say, how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to call on him whom they have not believed? It's not that we believe in things about Jesus. We believe Jesus. And then Paul goes on. And how are they to believe him whom they have never heard? That's what the text says. Now, I know in your Bibles, probably if it's like mine, it says, how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? Ask me, it's no form today, ask me over coffee and cakes afterwards about the genitive and accusative case of the verb to hear, and, or just go and talk to a Greek scholar, because there's loads here, because they all do Greek at high school if they go to the Oaks tutorials. But the thought here is not that the preacher tells people about Jesus and people then come to believe those things about Jesus that they're true. That's not what it says. The thought here is that when the preacher speaks, people hear Jesus speaking and they believe what Jesus says. That's just what the text says. Hence, verse 14. How beautiful are the feet of those who literally evangelize, preach the good news. I confess I had no idea about this when I started down the path to pastoral ministry. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Most pastors don't. But this is the frequent teaching of the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 2. Take another text here. Uh, In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is speaking about Christ, verse 13. You've been brought near through the blood of Christ because, verse 14, he is our peace. Interesting. He is our peace. Not he's brought us peace. He is our peace. He's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He's made peace. Verse 16, he's reconciled us both, that is Jew and Gentile, to God through the cross. And verse 17, just look. You've got to pay so much close attention to what the Bible says, you see. Verse 17, he's talking about Christ, Jesus, and it's written to people in Ephesus. And it says, and I quote, he came and preached peace to you. Jesus went to Ephesus to preach peace to you who are far off Gentiles and to those who are near Jews. I'm afraid Jesus never went to Ephesus. Jesus never went to Ephesus, except that he did. He came and preached as and through the preaching of the apostles. As the early ambassadors of Christ came to Ephesus and they spoke and they, their preaching went out, people heard the voice of the Lord Jesus. It said almost more explicitly in 1 Thessalonians 1, final reference, there's a bunch more I could take you to, but sorry, 1 Thessalonians 2, oh no, chapter 1, I can't resist this one, come on, look, verse 8, um, when the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, just think about that. It's not just Paul and Apollos and the early apostles who spoke the word of the Lord. The Thessalonians, they spoke the word of the Lord. The word of the living God sounded forth from them. Not words about God, words that God was speaking. And in fact, that's how they received it themselves. Chapter 2, verse 13. We thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, 
couldn't be clearer, could it? You didn't hear it as though it was just a man speaking, but as it really is the word of God, which is at work among you who believe. Can you see? Again and again and again, there are three or four other passages we could go to if we had time. The New Testament insists that when the preacher stands up to preach, the word of God sounds forth. So you encounter Christ. Uh, Words are a person speaking. John Calvin puts it like this. Man, if I'd known this, I probably would have done another another job because it was a bit less scary. You know, like um, somebody who cleans the inside of nuclear reactor cores or something. Quote, John Calvin. When a man climbs into the pulpit, is it so that he may be seen from afar and have a higher place than the rest? No. No. It is, quote, that God may speak to us by the mouth of a man, unquote. So, can you start to see why the early church was so excited about this? I confess this is, without realising it, this is what drove my desire to serve as a pastor. It was encountering preaching in and through which I met with Christ. From ordinary pastors just preaching week in, week out. I tell you their names. Dick Lucas, who's 90-something now, still alive. Vaughan Roberts, David McInnes. I, I, it was though I heard Jesus' voice. That shapes how I spend my time. It shapes how much time I I spend preparing sermons. I know it's the same for Pastor Shaw and Pastor Neil. Because we're, we're convinced that it's not that we are above anybody, but that we have this distinctive calling to to speak in the name of Jesus. That's what in the name of Jesus means. When you pray in the name of Jesus, you're coming and you're saying, Father, it's Jesus speaking. Please hear me. Which, incidentally, fourth point today about prayer, that might change how we think about prayer. What is the father going to say to his son? No. (laughs) Of course, I mean, what's the question you all want me to address? Like, what happens when I get things wrong? Well, okay, first up, be fair, I don't get everything wrong. Of course it's true that preachers get things wrong. Preachers make mistakes. And it's, it's striking to me that when the, the New Testament speaks about preachers speaking the word of God, the point is not to say, and therefore they are infallible. It's not an epistemological connection with the word of God, so much as it is a relational one. Can you see the difference? Of course I might get things wrong. Preachers get things wrong all the time. I know an Old Testament professor who has converted through the preaching of a text which he's now convinced was completely misinterpreted by the preacher who preached to him. But God has wonderful ways of, the, you know, you can draw straight lines with a bent stick, mercifully. But the point is that there is a relationship established in the preaching of the word between the congregation and Jesus. I have no business at all standing here declaring the word of God to you. Only Jesus can speak the word of Christ. 
Same with Pastor Shaw here earlier today, declaring that your sins are forgiven. What? Are you out of your mind? Well, yes. Because he's speaking in the name of Christ. Who, who was it precisely whom we saw the liturgical enactment of the outpouring of the Spirit on Timothy and little Trudy's heads? Who, who was it who poured out the Spirit? Was it Pastor Shaw? No. It was Jesus whose spirit outpouring we saw liturgically enacted. We have no business at all, except that we are ministers of Christ. What minister of Christ means is we sort of stand in his place doing his stuff for him, and he empowers us to do it, and we try and get it right, and mostly we hope we do. But even when we get it wrong, forgive us, and Scripture teaches you're encountering Jesus. Um, this uh, analogy occurred to me. Let's imagine you got a, uh, a letter from your grandmother. Uh, some of you, your grandmother, or if, you, if your grandmother has passed, then imagine from a distant relative, a beloved distant relative whom you respect immensely. Imagine you got a letter from them. What you would do is you would not sit down and think, right, I've got to do exactly everything they say. What you would do is you'd be excited about the relationship that is being mediated through these words. It's not, oh my goodness, grandma's on my case again, but do what I'm told. It's, isn't it wonderful to hear from grandma or from my cousin Dave or from my long-lost brother? My grandfather didn't see his brother for decades. He moved to Australia. And then they were reunited after they'd not been together for literally decades. It's that posture of relation, relationship-building words that we are to embrace as we hear the preached word. Hear, hear what, try and hear what we say as Jesus speaking. So they're devoted to the apostles' teaching. Second, they're devoted to literally the fellowship, back to Acts chapter 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, which, as I mentioned before, is then expanded in verses 44 and 45. Just look with me and I'll read it again. All those who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Notice here then that the fellowship is not just well, they had a cup of tea or coffee after worship. There is a significant commitment sharing resources to help one another, selling their possessions and goods, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. It's important to explore the background here because some have taken this off in some strange directions, some strange, if it's not an oxymoron, which it is, Christian socialist directions. You can understand why that might be. Just... Let me uh, flesh out a bit of the background to this, which will help you understand what is going on here. First, the meaning of the word fellowship, koinonia. Um, we normally kind of spiritualize the word, right? I mean, it's like fellowship is like prayer and Bible study and that kind of thing. And yes, it's true. But the word is actually used much more often in, in the Greek corpus as in business contexts. Two men are in fellowship if they start a business together. Two guys buy a boat and a bunch of nets to go fishing on the Sea of Galilee. They're in koinonia. 
fellowship. In fact, the only time the word is used in the Greek translations of the Old Testament, Hebrew, is in Leviticus 6, where um, the phrase deposit or security, in the sense of um, a business security, so like a contractual obligation is mentioned, the word is koinonia, something where you're bound to me because we both signed up to the same project. And that's the point here. Of course, it includes relationship in a Christian context, but the idea is we're in the business together. Like, you signed up to follow Jesus, I signed up to follow Jesus. Let's figure out how we're going to do this together. Not as individuals, but together. And that's set, secondly, against a historical background in the first century where there is a series of really serious food shortages, even famines, in Judea and, and further afield. You actually see hints of this in um, Acts chapter 6, when uh, you, this is the point at which the first proto-deacons are appointed, uh, the number of disciples is increasing and there's this dispute between the Hebraic and the Grecian widows about the distribution of food. It's like, what distribution of food? It's spoken of as though we're supposed to know what's going on. And of course we're supposed to know what's going on because everybody knows in the first century in Israel there are a series of really serious famines. In fact, Agapus prophesied one in Acts chapter 11, verse 28 across the whole Roman world. So in that context, what do you do? Well... It says, as any had need, people were supporting them. Now, many of people's savings would have been tied up not in savings accounts, uh, retirement accounts, IRAs, and so on, but in actual property. And so as somebody had need, well, I mean, I, got, I don't know, what do I do? I've got 15 acres, and my neighbor next door is like, like she's got no money, starving. What do I do? I mean, I guess, well, I'll sell an acre and, you know, We'll generate some, because we're in this together, because we're in koinonia, a shared commitment to the same goal. Notice as well, I mean, you've got to see this in the context of not just the realities of the first century situation depicted here, but the rest of the New Testament teaching. This is as everyone had need. It's not everyone sells everything we put into a common bucket. People still have houses that they own later in the book of Acts and later in the New Testament. It's not the case that we're abandoning private property ownership. Um, it's certainly not a kind of primitive form of socialism where everyone is generous with somebody else's money. This is generous with their own resources, voluntarily. And notice also, it's not a bailout for lazy people. And Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3, we looked at this a few months ago, if a man won't work, let him not eat. But the point here is, if a man has, just has nothing, what are you going to do, let him starve? No, not if you're in koinonia. Not if you're in fellowship. And of course, the, Christ, the theological background to this, once you think about it, is obvious. Je Jesus is not in the business of saving a bunch of isolated individuals. Just me, my Bible, and Jesus on my little desert island, cut off from everybody else. We're, we're united into the body of Christ. The, the ritual of Christian initiation, baptism, the ritual of Christian sustenance, the Lord's Supper, are one baptism, Ephesians 4. A common, as Peter Lightheart puts it, a common baptismal bath. Slightly provocative way of putting it. Well, he's not, he doesn't mean what you might... Anyway, you can see what he... You can see what he means. One baptism, Ephesians 4. One loaf. Because there's one loaf, there's one body. Because we all eat of one bread. Jesus speaks about this, of course, from another angle. Matthew 25, his um, teaching on the final judgment... Uh, when he's separating the sheep and the goats, remember? And he says to those 
who are um, uh, the, the, the sheep, so to speak, on his right. He says, when I, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. When I was a stranger, you welcomed me. When I was sick, you visited me. And when I was in prison, you, you came to see me. And you all said, when, when did we do that? And the point is, well, whenever you did that, for the least of these, my brothers, you did it for me. So there's almost a metaphysical point behind it, isn't it? There's a, there is the kind of union or relationship established between us such that we are joined to each other, to be committed to each other. Devoted to the fellowship. Very briefly, let's talk about the last couple of points. They were devoted to the breaking of bread, verse 42, which means, well, look, let's just look at verse 46, and it sort of spells it out for us. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. So you've got lots of Christians, 3,000 or more, and the temple courts are huge, several acres inside, in size. And so regularly, multiple times a week, they'd be meeting there in some space within the temple courtyards, outside kind of space for worship. And in, in smaller groups in their homes, breaking bread in their homes for the breaking of bread. And of course, we want to know what's it talking about. Is it, what are these meals? Are they normal meals? Well, some of them probably were, verse 46. They received their food. The word for food is just the normal word for eating a meal. But you don't have to look too hard to see here a, a picture of the significant meal, the ritual meal, the communal liturgical meal of the Christian church. Just look in, again, verse 46. Um, breaking bread in their homes. Or in verse 42, more poignantly, the breaking of bread. That phrase actually occurs in only one other place in the entire New Testament. It's in, um, at the end of Luke's Gospel when Jesus meets with his disciples. And uh, they recount, um, it's in uh, Luke 24:35. They recount how their eyes were opened and, quote, how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Just, let that, just think about that for a second. This is, okay, this is not just kind of hamburgers at dawn, right? This is a particular breaking of bread that they are experiencing here. So, so very likely what's going on is that there are a variety of opportunities to eat together because they're all together. I mean, they're Christians now, so most of their Jewish friends don't want to talk to them. But also, they're probably starting to put in place the regular corporate liturgical celebration of weekly worship which flowers really quite quickly in the early church period the ingredients for which are taken from old and new testaments so that's one of the reasons why it's, there's a big theological structure behind this but it's why we have the lord's supper here weekly because we want to be breaking bread together it's actually the climax of our time encountering the living god to not just stand in the foyer and have a chat and hear his voice, the apostles' teaching, but to sit down 
at the family meal table and commune with him and upon him the breaking of bread. And then, of course, the meals. It's really interesting. I, one, of the, one of the things I tell you, I can't tell you how many hours we've been trying to figure out what to do with this, is the church has grown here, and we've outgrown not just the sanctuary, but the fellowship hall. Hey, everybody in the fellowship hall. Um, we, we've lost our regular place to have fellowship meals. We used to have them every month, and most of us who have been here for more than a few months remember that. Now, I, I want you to know, I think that's significant. Um, we've been thinking about what we can do to get that back. Maybe we can't do it in the same way or so often. Maybe if like 100 people go to Granbury or something, we can all squeeze back in there again, at least for a few weeks until we have more people queuing up to join. But, but I want you to know, oh, this is why the Reformation celebration. Let's have a meal together. Let's gather together. If you're not signed up yet, answer Pastor Shaw's email and sign up. Because we want to gather together at meal times. Something happens when you gather around a table, whether this one or any other. And of course, the prayers. Many have pointed out that these were probably the temple prayers. Verse 46, attending the temple together. Of course they would have done that. The temple hasn't yet been destroyed. You may still legitimately go there and pray to the Lord. But, you know, verse 47, they've received their food with glad and generous hearts and they're praising God in the context of just meeting in their homes. It reminds me of, again, just my old friend John Calvin. He has this, well, one of the best sections of his, not my friend, I don't know him personally, you understand, but um, one day. Um, one, one of the best sections of his institutes is the section on prayer in book four. And he's got this meditation on Jesus' parable of the treasure hidden in a field. Remember the Jesus' parable, Matthew 13? And you'd sell everything and buy the field. And Calvin says, we dig up by prayer the treasures which have been pointed out by the Lord's gospel and which our faith has gazed upon. The point is that God the Father has just buried treasure all around the place for us. And prayer is how you dig it up. Remember, because you come in Jesus' name. Right? Think what Jesus did to allow you to come to the Father in his name. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? That's what Jesus experienced so that we can come to his Father in prayer in his name. What's the Father going to do now? Say, sorry, I'm not interested. No, Jesus has done the hard bit. Let, let your convictions about the sacrifice that Jesus paid to reconcile us with him and with his Father open the gates of prayer to you. Why would God the Father not want to hear from you? Of course he would. And that fresh realisation of what God has done in Christ drove them to the fourth of these foundations by which they encountered Jesus the prayers. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Let's pray together. Merciful and gracious Father, how kind you are to us. How much you have given us life and breath and everything else. And in our Lord Jesus Christ, you have quite literally torn open the gates of the Holy of Holies that we may enter in. Teach us, we pray, to 
do precisely that in faith, rebuilding our lives on him. And we pray in his name. Amen.